The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We've been doing a number of uh, pretty heavy programs these past few weeks. Um, They have involved interviews on a variety of topics that include spectacular to somewhat more more mundane uh, discoveries. We have also interspersed these programs with some uh, issues that archaeologists are dealing with now, legal issues, uh, how to conduct archaeology in compulsory environments, uh, compulsory uh, settings that will require um, a certain skill set, and will require a certain type of capability for the archaeologist to sort of marshal his project through very uh, stringent regulatory processes. Now, these, by and large, the latter uh, points being uh, the emphasis here, these latter issues, compliance, compulsory, regulatory, those items are by and large not taught in uh, undergraduate or even advanced graduate programs. It's at this point... um, a natural outcome of your experience. So experience would be one of those deals where you really, really have to have a fair amount in order to really look at what a lot of the archaeological environments are all about. And I'm speaking largely about government and private sector. That by way of a sort of convoluted introduction to our present program, which uh, for students I would think is probably very interesting and to the public more than a smattering of interest involved here. Because we are talking about what kind of training you need to become an archaeologist and what the archaeological environment is. Now, the first point that I want to make as far as archaeological education and training is concerned is that it's absolutely imperative for the public and for professionals 
as well, if not more so, to understand that archaeology is increasingly becoming an applied business. Now, I know, I know you're going to say to yourself, you have heard this message from me before, but I can't overstate it more enough, uh, more strongly enough, because what's happened in the past 10 or 15 years is that the balance between academic and archaeology, academic archaeology and regulatory, private, and public archaeology has changed so rapidly and has undergone such a metamorphosis that we have to make very, very quick adjustments in order to accommodate, accommodate the shifts in the profession. And uh, what this means for education, certainly, is that archaeological education will and is undergoing a major revolution. And uh, it's imperative, and I can't uh, stress this more strongly, it is imperative that our academic institutions uh, actually formally train our students to do applied archaeology because the world of applied archaeology is so vast and so complex and has so many intricate networks involved in them that it will not be possible to get on-the-job training as it used to be when um, commercial archaeology, which was in its infancy, which only goes back about 20, 25 years. So what I'm saying is that the next five or 10 years in, uh, in your school training will probably witness some overhauls, at least some anyway, in the ways and models that archaeological training will follow. And my objective in this particular episode is to give you some insights into what has changed what has not changed, and what really needs to change if you're considering an archaeological degree uh, as a prelude to going into the profession. Now, some of the basic fundamentals, some of the, well, that's a contradiction here, but some of the fundamentals are the same. You are, by and large, as an undergrad graduate, you are going to go through an anthropology program. That is, if you're in the United States. It is a little different in other countries. But if you're in the United States and in North America, then you will be effectively getting your chops or your initial chops as an undergraduate with a BA degree in anthropology. Now, there are students in some applied fields that make a transition to anthropology um, later on. Uh, that's much more infrequent than it would for specialists who start out in anthropology and, and realize that their archaeological development may be best served by following uh, directions in the harder scientists, uh, sciences or in some cases even in the humanities and in the arts. That's a decision that will be made, but by and large, the trajectory would go from a bachelor's degree to a master's degree to a Ph.D. Years ago, uh, certainly when I was in school, which was back in the Pleistocene, um, people very often thought that the Ph.D. was the key degree uh, and, and that sort of conformed with a model in which teaching was the only outlet for archaeological employment. That is not the case anymore. Uh, PhDs are still considered to be the high point of archaeological education, but the necessity for that degree is increasingly reduced as the opportunities for archaeological work in the applied world uh, becomes enhanced. 
As a result of that, the fundamental degree for practicing archaeology in any kind of a responsible position and uh, looking at archaeology as a profession where you can, in fact, rise through the works, through the ranks, rather, is to achieve your master's degree. A BA is good for getting out in the work, work world. And again, again, and again, that would refer to uh, getting limited uh, vocational expertise or experience in an excavation, in a laboratory for analysis, and in a curation facility. You can certainly, uh, if you're in that situation, which a lot of kids are, and I know my, my son is evaluating this as well, you want to take that transition year between finishing high school and, and uh, going into college, and then uh, farther on down the road between going into college and getting a master's degree, you can start working in archaeology out of high school. You can get some uh, experience working on excavations. More commonly, you would need a bachelor's degree, and the bachelor's degree will allow you to work on excavations, will allow you to dig holes, to do measurements, to record information, to learn some basics about soils and landscapes, to look at what artifacts are all about, just sort of to give you a show aspect of the show-and-tell operation. You will see what these artifacts look like, um, not just in display cases or in figures in textbooks, but as they are retrieved out of the ground. There is nothing that's analogous to that. Um, you have to go through this experience to really understand uh, where the artifacts are coming from. And as we've emphasized on numerous programs, context or the primary location of the artifact is probably the single most important aspect of archaeological data recovery. Because when you uh, dig up a site, you're, you're effectively destroying it. So that you need to know, you need to see, you need to touch, and you need to feel. And as you progress, you are going to have increasingly more sophisticated mental tools to look at what you're seeing in the ground and how to assess it. Um, so at, at the most rudimentary level, you have to get that bachelor's degree. And uh, you could take some time off, certainly, um, and then move on to a master's degree, which will typically take you, uh, depending on whether or not you work during the operation, during your schooling, it will take you about anywhere from one to three years. Once you're armed with a master's degree and the requisite experience, then you're in a position where you can take on some responsibility. You can direct small excavation areas. Uh, you can be supervising teams of uh, two to five people, and you can be part of an integrated group. Now, if you have developed the fundamental skills of writing and analysis, then all of a sudden your card is richer. And you can parlay that, if you will, into uh, certain types of responsibilities that will allow you to actually make some key decisions and will allow you to assess and to contribute to the flow of a project and to really understand what a site is all about and, and, and how it integrates into the broader local and regional archaeological records. So, again, obviously you have a map a roadmap to how to proceed to get to the master's degree. But once you get that master's degree, a whole new vista opens up because your responsibilities and your abilities are going to guide you by themselves once you're armed with that degree. Then it's sort of you're shifting the responsibility from the academic institution to you yourself. And as far as you can take yourself, that's as far as you go. Uh, people who do very well fall into two categories. Some really want to 
expand upon this. They want to get the advanced degree. They want to direct projects A, or they want to get into teaching B. So those are the routes that are certainly open to you once you get into a PhD. But again, to get to the highest levels of private and uh, public sector archaeology, well, I'll qualify that in a minute, but the higher levels of, of uh, uh, corporate and public sector archaeology, you will need at least a master's degree. In complicated project areas, uh, areas that will require some very extensive and intensive knowledge bases, uh, in the past five years, and especially in the Western United States, having a PhD is becoming mandatory to direct and to be the principal investigator for very large projects. And, and, and there are numerous reasons for that. One of them, of course, is the quality of work, which is expected by a lot of the regulators. And the other one is something that probably wouldn't guess, but that is liability. Because the way you do archaeology as part of a regulatory chain is uh, it, it becomes a legal issue. Um, if a, a project is going to be developed, um, if an area is going to be turned into a forest or a highway or a building complex, and you have given that project area clearance, and something is encountered by the excavators, not the excavators, but by the developers at the very final stages of an excavation as they are prepping their work for construction and something major is found, you are in very tricky terrain and you can expect as much as you cannot expect to be uh, brought to a trial if this is going to cost time and money and a lot of these development projects, roads, pipelines, buildings, uh, building complexes, water, water and sewer lines, that for, the, for those folks, time is money. And if you have not gotten clearance or if you've gotten bogus clearance because you didn't find something that should have been uh, red flagged earlier in the process, you'll be, caught, you'll be uh, brought to account for that. And your firm could theoretically be liable for thousands, hundreds of thousands and even millions of dollars. And the person you do want when you're up against a situation like that to testify in a court of law on these potential miscues is a PhD because uh, they would expect that the highest authority for the project is the one that's going to be brought to account for it. And it can get very ugly if that's not the case. And we will be back and continue our discussions on getting degrees in archaeology after these words. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. When you talk about the subject of bullying, it's not just the person being bullied who is dealing with complicated issues. It's also parents and teachers. Bullying has even taken a new turn with social networking, negative images, and even reality TV. 
Tune in to One Word Nation Radio with host Jessica Brookshire. We'll put the issue of bullying front and center, going beyond the classrooms and hallways of our schools to help empower and protect youth and their families. Listen every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. I'm back. This is Joe Shilton Ryan with a uh, novel program, if you will, or a program that is uh, sort of a practical person's guide to archaeological education and what you do with it. And the last item that I had touched on is the entire question of liability and legality in archaeology. And, and as I'm, I'm speaking these words, a number of thoughts are going through my mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... I guess I had emphasized sort of in the beginning of the program that the Ph.D. is not what it used to be and that um, because the uh, the pedagogy of archaeological education has changed from an academic to an applied objective, if you will, in other words, we're trained to be more applied, then the Ph.D. has sort of declined as, as, as it, insofar as its utility as um, the ultimate degree and the ultimate authority in archaeology is concerned. Um, but again, what, what's happening now is with legal and liability issues coming to the fore, the PhD is sort of re-emerging slowly because of uh, issues that were never anticipated in the past, and that is simply that in the litigious environment, when things can go horribly wrong, um, as, as, as again, archaeology becomes part of the compliance and regulatory process, uh, there are projects that are brought to trial. And those projects are brought to trial because the archaeology was not done carefully enough. Um, the level of the work was not up to snuff. And in a very tangible sense, um, and I'll give, I'll give you a case in a moment, but at a very tangible sense, fines were made that hadn't been anticipated and had not been recovered and even discovered um, that could theoretically and in many cases practically cause a delay in the project, even though, even though uh, the work was uh, approved and ostensibly cleared. And a classic case in, in, in this scenario would be a Native American burial ground where uh, systematic sampling design was put to the fore. Uh, the sampling design for whatever reason, whether it was random sampling or judicious sampling, there's a variety of different types of ways to do these sampling. Uh, a burial area was not uncovered and was not encountered, and it becomes a critical issue that you cannot uh, sweep under the carpet. In a case like that, 
you can be pretty much assured that the archaeological company or the agency that has hired the archaeological company will be brought to trial and you want your highest and most advanced degree holder to be the person testifying uh, on that account because that is the person who ostensibly has the greatest degree of expertise in the field. Um, so again, as I'm saying, that the master's degree is sort of the pivotal point here for uh, advancing in archaeology. You can go a long ways, especially if you demonstrate major uh, people skills. And again, people skills are critical in archaeology as much as academic skills are, depending on the sector of the working environment that you choose to operate in. As far as training and skill sets are concerned... Um, at this point in time, and, and it's true certainly in North America, it's also true in many parts of Europe and South America and even Africa and Asia, um, the undergraduate degree represents sort of a broad brush introduction to what archaeology is about and in North America how it integrates into the general study of cultures, which anthropology is, and we have what's called a four-field approach here in North America that emphasizes, uh, in addition to archaeology, physical anthropology, which also related to human evolution, social anthropology, which deals with the organization, economic and political uh, institutions that form societies, and uh, linguistics, uh, linguistics referring to the structure of language and how language is an integral part of culture systems. Uh, what we're seeing in the past few years is the four-field approach has been challenged in many places. It's really not widely accommodated outside the United States. That can be argued for better or worse. But as far as archaeologists and archaeology is concerned, the four-field approach um, integrates archaeology in the under the anthropological umbrella, but in most countries, uh, archaeology is considered in and of itself a final discipline. In other words, a discipline that stands on its own two feet. And the reasons for that, in, in large measure, are because the uh, archaeology is essentially considered here a method, a method for recovering items that are of cultural significance. The question becomes, do we want to consider the cultural significance issue as the overriding uh, matter, or do we want to consider the recovery of any information related to, um, to, to early occupation as being an end in and of itself. In other words, we can establish spatial and, and depth relationships between archaeological findings, and those can be identified and interpreted to a large degree without necessarily bringing um, larger evolutionary questions or social organization questions into the fold. It's all a question of how far you want these interpretations to go and where you want them to go. Archaeological scientists are concerned with understanding techniques and studies of technology. Uh, yes, they can uh, fold that into the broader study of culture in a region, but their, methodolo their methodological aspirations are so significant and so all-encompassing that um, the cultural component of it, yes, is, is incorporated into a broader picture, but it not, it's not necessarily the end product. Um, as methodologies get more and more sophisticated, remote sensing, archaeological sciences, biological archaeology, DNA, <clears throat> we, we have to place, in some cases, 
a larger emphasis on the method itself and leave the more, uh, shall we say, inductive interpretive sequences or induct, uh, interpretive perspectives to individuals or people who are interested in expanding the horizons of the discovery to a broader, um, under a broader umbrella. And these, of course, are, are, are sort of methodological questions and orientation questions that each university deals with. Um, but a, in a practical sense, I think we're seeing more of a fragmentation in archaeological theory and more of an emphasis on archaeological method. And um, in most of the countries in Europe and to some degree in Latin America, the trajectory for archaeological training is, in fact, very often tightened up and, as a function of that, shortened because the student or the professor agree that you have to get out of school and you have to have a practical skill under your belt so that you can practice archaeology in a contemporary environment. We certainly talked about what the ramifications of that are and what it means. Um, I would tend to agree with that perspective by and large, and I think it just becomes a practical question. I mean, we can talk about theory as much as we want. We can talk about the need to understand it as much as we want, but ultimately the costs of training and the applications of archaeology combine to make it necessary at this point in time that archaeologists get a quick trajectory in terms of their education, go right into the accumulating experience, and uh, don't have to uh, basically accumulate incredible amounts of debt so that they pay for um, an education whose fiscal remuneration at the end of this rainbow is simply not that great as it would be, say, if you're pursuing a, a career as an attorney or a doctor or, uh, or a corporate executive, just to give you a few examples. Another area of concern and an area of increasing focus is what do you want to specialize in? Do you want to specialize in a method, a scientific method that relates to uh, aspects of archaeological interpretation, or do you want to focus on a region or an area? Um, regional uh, expertise is critical if you have decided at the outset that you really want to specialize, say, in the archaeology of the Mississippian period in Georgia or South Carolina. And if that's where you want to be for a variety of reasons, I mean, it's a topic that's interesting to you. Your family is there and you want to stay there. Uh, you've, you can get a job in, in, in a university or in a company that's over there and you find the archaeology interesting. Then, uh, then you would concentrate on something like that. Um, obviously, the most uh, compelling um, argument for this is you're simply interested in that kind of stuff. Or expertise in a method. Now, the advantage of expertise in a method is that it's transportable, it's mobile, and uh, depending on how you're trained or how you uh, gain your experience, you can mobilize and transport that skill to a lot of different areas. And, that, of course, that opens up uh, employment opportunities in a large, in large measure because you can work for companies whose uh, 
uh, domain in terms of their geographic area uh, extends across the world or extends across various parts of North America or extends into Europe. That kind of expertise, that kind of technique is always necessary. I'm talking about things like pollen analysis, the study of ancient vegetation patterns, geomorphology, which is my strength, which talks about changing landscapes and how we read that in the archaeological record and how archaeological findings, specifically on a larger scale, meaning settlement configurations, what we know about settlement organization, how that's related to changing landscapes, which in turn inform on more uh, directly applicable issues like climate change, global warming, and a variety of different questions that really have strong relevance to our contemporary geopolitical systems. And uh, I, I would say uh, my own bias is certainly towards methodological expertise. Um, but again, that doesn't have to be your issue. Um, if you are comfortable working in another, uh, in, in the more regionally based or aerially based uh, focus, then you can certainly do that. And your opportunities are certainly going to be big, especially, again, if you go into the private or public sectors where archaeology is really done uh, for North Americanists everywhere. And in Europe, on an even larger scale, um, and, and now in, develop, in the developing parts of the world, Latin America and Africa and parts of Asia, also are experiencing booms that will require archaeological and regulatory compliance um, archaeological infrastructures for example in Brazil are taking on a whole new perspective um, archaeological infrastructures in Africa are starting to expand and get uh, extend beyond the university and certainly in Europe um, where the preservation laws are so stringent because there simply is just not that much land and land is constantly reused and it's been reused in historic and late prehistoric times almost everywhere across the continent. Well, then there is clearly a focus on regionality that is very, very applicable. And again, the private sector and the public sectors that uh, trains, that uh, employ trained students would certainly benefit from folks who are, say, experts in a particular area or a particular time frame. Again, the 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 uh, focus on region is also a fo- can also be supplanted, if you will, or complemented by a focus on time frames. So these are all fin- uh, interesting venues for undertaking archaeological archaeology, and by extension, for guiding archaeological education. And I would submit to you that getting that focus in your educational trajectory is critical because the earlier you make a commitment to what you want to do, the easier it is for you to eventually land a job or find a position because you've been doing that kind of archaeology and had that kind of focus early on. So on that basis and uh, leaving you with that thought, uh, we'll be back in a few minutes after these words. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. 
The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to a new view of life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A new view of life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to hear about what's going on in the world of fashion, beauty, gossip, and politics? Then you'll want to tune in every Wednesday to the Voice America Variety Channel. Face Forward with entrepreneur and beauty consultant Sarah McNamara is honest talk, great guests, and a cool vibe with a lot of fun. Sarah and her guy Friday, Anthony, will turn you on to what's hot and what's not. This is a radio show custom made for you. Tune in to Face Forward, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the East, 11 a.m. in the West on Voice America Variety. Tune in to Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back and we're talking about archaeological education and its linkage to the work world. Uh, we have been discussing uh, the nature of education. We've talked about um, the types of specializations that one might pursue when developing a program for what's oneself in archaeology. Ultimately, I think it's the objective and the focus of most archaeologists interested to get a job. And uh, getting a job at this point in time and in most of the world will involve, in fact, um, working in compliance archaeology and regulatory archaeology. Now, I don't want to downgrade the importance and the potential of doing uh, state-of-the-art research. There is nothing like it. And it is probably one of the sources of greatest pride when you can say that you worked on a project that helped us understand, for example, patterns of human evolution. Uh, the people who identified and discovered DNA tracing, for example, and its uh, incredible interpretive potential for uh, understanding the human evolutionary record, I would imagine that there is no satisfaction that compares to that because that's a major discovery. And those types of discoveries, by and large, still come from academic venues. The problem is that these venues are smaller, they're shrinking, 
and uh, we have to turn our attention to the applied field, if only because most of us are going to do that and because it's a critical backup scenario in case your uh, career will move in that direction. Um, and, and again, you know, one of the things I would emphasize is that for years, and this is taking us basically until the turn of the 21st century, the applied archaeology field known as heritage management, most of the world, and cultural resource management, that was looked on upon scants in academic institutions as sort of a stepping stone to getting what used to be called a real job, which would be a teaching job. And that, of course, has changed when the numbers of the relative proportions of jobs have been skewed so prominently in the direction of the applied field, you can no longer use those old models for training archaeologists uh, to be teachers because at some point uh, they have to train archaeologists to become practitioners. And again, this is a topic that we talked about earlier and there are several other shows that deal with it, so I will leave that aside. But our key issue here is archaeology, education, and uh, jobs. And uh, I have been asked on numerous occasions since I have my own company and since a lot of the folks I do uh, interact with, a lot of my colleagues are private sector archaeologists working in cultural resources management, what are they looking for in potential candidates to work there? Well, that's a wonderful question at this point in time. I think it's a, a question that is constantly – that whose answers are constantly in flux. But I will say that as of this year, 2013, we are looking for people with methodological expertise. We are looking for people that can go into an archaeological area irrespective of its geographic location and start to feel at home – with a particular excavation, with a particular development project, because they have tools that are universally needed in archaeological projects. Now, there are several of these. I'll uh, touch on some of, some of the areas of expertise that are universally uh, necessary. And, and, and the first one is one that has never really changed. This one has been with us as long as archaeologists have been around, and that is the skill to present your findings in a coherent fashion. No one, and I mean no one, will remember your project if you have not published it or if it has not come out in either in this day and age in, in videos or um, the social networking systems, which again are largely visual since archaeology is a visual situation. Uh, but in addition to that, um, to get the entire story of any kind of a site or any kind of an archaeological interpretation, you have to have writing skills. That's the single most important skill, I think, that you need in archaeology. You have to express the nature of your findings and their significance in a coherent and comprehensive manner, one that would be understandable first to, uh, well, initially, let's just say initially, to the professional community and probably, and I would argue even more significantly, to the greater public because the public is increasingly relied upon to finance these ventures um, for a variety of reasons, but there seems to now be an inverse relationship between the uh, amount of money that's available for uh, private and, and um, public sector archaeology versus the amount of money that's uh, 
available in pure research, the latter shrinking, the former expanding. And uh, this is an unfortunate state of affairs. I think it's probably most prominent in North America, much less so in, in, in Europe where um, – a, a larger emphasis is placed on pure research. Uh, again, uh, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, well, I think the first ones, the primary ones are reasons that you can guess. The Europeans as well are going to and are in the process of toning down their composite outlays for archaeology um, as, as much as we have, probably even more so, because of the fiscal crises uh, in places like Spain, Portugal, Greece, Ireland, there simply is no money. And one of the uh, priorities that gets kicked downstairs, if you will, would be archaeology when there is no money to finance these digs. It's unfortunate the Europeans, by and large, had a wonderful record and, and, and provided incredible outlays for archaeological recovery, in part because their heritage is so long. But that's coming to an end with the debt situation and the euro crises, um, and it won't return to what it was. I mean, certainly it won't return in our lifetime. And uh, as a result of that, the money available for pure research, even in areas where it had heretofore been very available, that's dying. Now, the Germans are probably the last ones to go down on this matter, but they too are experiencing tremendous cuts. So in, in any case, that said... Um, what you need to do in private sector archaeology, what you need to know coming through the door is A, how to write, B, how to excavate. And again, excavation is probably led by a master's person, but uh, undertaken by bachelor's level people. In some cases, it's not the case. It, it's not the situation. By and large, it is. So um, that's that's one aspect of it. The other element of it is learning how to use specialists because right now the watchword for archaeological research is interdisciplinary cooperation. We talked about pollen analysis, vegetation analysis, geomorphology. All those people are integrated to a, into a sophisticated uh, archaeological en endeavor, one in which you have essentially a large site with, an, with a substantial landscape and you need to know about the relationship between the findings themselves and the settings in which they are preserved. So, uh, yes, we are always looking for people who are specialists. Uh, in terms of other skills, um, the one you'll hear bandied about the most is GIS, Geographic Information Systems. Um, this is the ability for us as researchers and as private and public sector archaeologists to look at the coincidence of various elements that contribute to the archaeological record in a vertical or a spatial fashion. And that's just a quick, uh, a rather uh, wordy way of saying that the ability to lay one on top of the other maps of soils, um, drainage, uh, archaeological distribution shows us essentially the correlations between these types of data sets. And there is nothing more important in trying to develop the systematics of archaeological interpretation than to see these clear associations between land use and uh, archaeological findings. And uh, that, that correlation leads you to the more cultural interpretations that uh, you would otherwise not been able to filter out because there's so many layers um, in between the interpretation and the data recovery such that uh, the GIS, uh, the geographic information s systems people, they can sort that out because they can filter out what uh, what 
uh, particular databases they are looking at, what particular types of information sets they uh, are going to uh, identify as being critical for looking at patterning in the record, and so on and so forth. So you have to have GIS. If you're going to come in tomorrow and knock on my door and say, I'd like to work for you, the first question I will invariably ask you is GIS. I won't ask you about writing. I can see that. But I would ask you about GIS because if you can't write and if you can't do GIS, then your utility for the firm and I mean firms in in uh, in the plural, your utility gets downgraded a tremendous amount. Another uh, very critical skill set, and, and one that has sort of flown under the radar. We never considered it to be a big issue, uh, but that is laboratory work. Laboratory work meaning assessing, integrating, and dating the age of deposits and trying to figure out what these deposits are a sealed archaeological horizon, what they would have been related to. Are they related to a house? Are they related to a temple? Are they related to an old store? Um, all these types of questions are answerable by well-trained uh, MA-level uh, scientists. Um, they can deal with these issues, and they do deal with these issues and, and, and get tremendous amount of information from that. Um, broad areas, expertise and expertise in one area, in a certain area, again, that touches on whether or not you want to be an expert in terms of methodology and investigative techniques, or you really want to just concentrate in your, uh, what would be broadly called your own backyard, which uh, clearly takes in a lot of terrain. Um, I think always of the Mississippi Valley because I've done a fair amount of work there. But uh, you sort of base your your operations in places like that and, um, and, and, and you mobilize your groups to go out, recover information, and analyze it and write it up in a report. Is it all that simple? Yeah, it is. But the amount of time that you're actually going to spend doing that is very, very much. And uh, I, I think that the learning curve can get steep as you go into a progressively more sophisticated archaeological site and you try to integrate its location and its setting to um, other archaeological sites in the region first, in the, in, the, in the municipalities and localities first, the region second, and across the country third. So that those are the major skill set. And if somebody comes to me and has a poor writing sample and doesn't know GIS, um, then they could be pretty much assured that they'll have nothing to do with us because those are the important uh, the baseline skills that we need absolutely now. So um, on that note, I think we are going to take another break and we will be back after these words to wrap up our program. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. The hottest legal issues of today, live, unscripted, uncensored. Legal Sense with James Andrews brings in the experts to address important legal topics that affect society, you, and your family. Divorce, bankruptcy, student loans, or your constitutional rights. Some people don't know the difference between a plaintiff and defendant, petitioner, or respondent. Let attorney James Andrews make legal sense of the law for you. Listen live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stop worrying about your legal woes. Listen and learn. Legal Sense. We're here to serve. 
would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, Radio to Thrive By. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back for our final segment on archaeology, education, and professionalism, and uh, how do we uh, shift our educational models to accommodate the employment opportunities in the functional archaeological world. And we've talked about it pretty rigorously, I think, at, to this point. I, I do want to touch on another point that would apply to a large number of archaeologists, and that specifically is opportunities in uh, foreign lands, and uh, especially lands outside of North America, where where uh, basically codes are pretty much established, and protocols and uh, patterns of operation are fairly standardized and are more related to local ways of doing things and local sets of regulators, regional sets of regulators, and uh, per, uh, best best practices. Those are the sorts of things that we've we've actually touched upon here. But what about working in other lands? Well, I think that working in the developing world is is a major major challenge and and the developing world for comprises a huge number of content of com- countries and requires a certain i would say unique series of negotiating skills if you want to call it that to move along and to actually obtain uh, permits which are required when you do archaeology in certain types of the world, certain parts of the world where uh, the boundaries for archaeological research, and in many cases rightly so, are closed to uh, people from the host country because they're the ones that are effectively uh, the descendants of the original residents, and they're the ones that will keep the artifacts. Well, everybody should keep the artifacts in the country in which they're working, but they will keep the artifacts and and, and pay especially close attention to them. And uh, finally, um, in many countries, and uh, not here so much, although we have parallel agency, there are departments of antiquities that... Um, Ride shotgun for for compliance purposes on these archaeological pri- projects. Now, unfortunately, 
or fortunately, depending on what your perspective is, um, the agendas for many countries are uh, different. And uh, archaeology and heritage management, if you will, has inadvertently gotten itself allied with, uh, with, with questions of human origins, human dispersals, native lands, etc., etc., etc. And in order to enhance the ability of archaeologists from these countries, in many cases, some of, or at least some of which, um, they have really no formal training programs. The important thing is to get those folks in the field and to do that work uh, locally, if at all possible, and, and regionally, if not natural, naturally, uh, nationally, excuse me, um, if the circumstances so warrant. So uh, when, when, when Americans or North Americans want to do work in a country that, let's say, has captivated their attention, I will tell you that in my life, in my professional lifetime, which uh, now, is, now goes back to close to 40 years, it used to be very easy to do this because you would speak to uh, an officer of the uh, host country, let's say it was a country in the Middle East or wherever, and he will check his files um, and take a look and then in all likelihood he would say, go ahead, take a look at it. Uh, we just need a representative of the Department of Antiquities to go with you. And uh, we also need to see how your data are conveyed and expressed in what format, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're off and you're, you're doing your work. It, in most cases, it's a huge advantage, an absolutely enormous advantage for uh, Western archaeologists, that would include people from the U.S., to team up as carefully as possible with students and faculty from hosting countries. That is a major, major message that I would like to promote in this program because uh, years ago, um, you could do archaeology as an American almost anywhere, and that would include Western Europe. Uh, that's not true anymore. I mean, countries like Spain, France, Germany have people who are immaculately trained in archaeological techniques. They also have issues of heritage and pride, and uh, they feel they can do all of this by themselves, and they certainly can. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, in many cases, they have a lot to teach us. So those are those are issues that will come up in in the, in developing countries. There are a myriad of problems having to do with not being able to procure the right car, not being able to get a uh, excavation permit because. Uh, the language that was used in the document was not clear on whether or not you could be excavating or surveying, which is non-intrusive in, in many parts of the drier, in many of the drier parts of uh, the international archaeological scene. So those are really criti critical issues that have to be taken care of in advance of the project. I can't emphasize this more. Um, th that you really have to know what the roadmap is from. Uh, conjuring up an idea for doing archaeology to um, getting the funding, of course, which is critical, and then to developing a relationship with the antiquities division or the heritage people in that particular country because uh, they will uh, be able to put on or apply uh, coaxing, if you will, to regulatory agencies and governmental agencies to allow a project to go forward. So that's that's really critical. Um, you will always have a representative of antiquities in, in the developing world, I believe. Uh, certainly the ones I've worked at 
um, had had that requirement. And you're in most cases, you're also asked to preside, pr- provide a, a monthly a report of uh, your results as you're going down underneath the, the contemporary ground surface. Um, this is a widespread practice. Ingratiating yourself with the departments of antiquities are always important. It's always important. And the antiquities people will probably um, give you... Um, Escorts and protection in areas that can be dangerous. That's certainly true in many parts of the developing world. And they'll also supply you with, with uh, field labor, uh, depending on what the nature of the project is. So I, this, these, are requ- these are guidelines that uh, range from being requirements to simply beneficial. But I would say when in doubt go for the uh, protocol that would include greater involvement by people from the host country. You can't go wrong that way because uh, there have been incidents in in various exhibits around the world in which uh, Aboriginal or Native American uh, spokespeople showed up at these exhibits and uh, were moved to actually tear them down because they felt they were uh, inaccurate de- de- depiction of what their ancestors' likes, uh, lives were like. So there are a variety of different types of uh, issues that one has to take into account when working in foreign countries. Again, um, cooperative arrangements in university settings especially um, – are always welcome because that will ensure that there's a free flow of intellect, talent, and and people from one part of the world to the other. And it sort of helps to build a bridge between um, two countries that can cooperate on a project rather than have each one of them digging in his own separate part of the same field or same territory, which really doesn't make any sense unless there is some compliance issues that are involved with that. But in most cases, that's not going to happen. I think that private development uh, and heritage development is becoming a much more important component of archaeology, especially, again, in the developing developing world, because a lot of those countries have some of the best monuments and most significant monuments that lead into this most critical area of economic development in the developing world, and that would be ecotourism. Ecotourism takes upon itself the uh, benefits that are incurred when one does uh, archaeology because archaeology exposes culture at its most basic level. And uh, the future uh, is very bright for that kind of work. I would say uh, in closing, because we're running out of time, that the future is very, very bright for applied archaeology, not so much for pure research archaeology, very bright for heritage preservations as as, uh, countries are sort of uh, emerging, uh, uh, developing countries are emerging to uh, join the first world. And I think you'll see more and more of this kind of work. And and finally, uh, we can't ignore the fact that we need to have trainers in our universities, instructors in our universities who are aware of the contemporary employment market. It sounds a bit crass, I'm sure. Some people will say that and be offended. But we have to train our archaeologists to do work in the context of the 20th century 
with where the model is largely heritage management and preservation and where the tools currently available in most universities simply don't exist. So on that note, I'd like to thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, stay healthy and stay well. Uh, good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.